Turn in your Bibles with me or open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians uh, chapter 1. As we walk through this book, we'll be considering the main theme of no other gospel. And Paul gets right to it here in the beginning. And so he doesn't hide it at all. This morning we'll be looking at the one true gospel in Galatians 1, 1 through 10. One true gospel. As we walk through this passage together, we'll see this, that there always has been, is now, and ever will be only one true gospel. So if you have a copy of God's word with you, and I hope you do, you can see in Galatians 1, verse 1, we'll read together. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we'll pause there for a moment and just kind of orient us into where we are in this book of Galatians. Now, it's not hard to figure out Uh, who wrote this book because the very first word is Paul. So we know it's from Paul and it's to these churches in Galatia. And we think Paul wrote this book somewhere between the years 48 and 55. And the reason that there is some debate about that is that there are a couple of regions in Galatia that Paul visited. So if you track on this map here, you can kind of see that Galatia is a vertical area. It's in the middle of modern-day Turkey. So this peninsula here you see circled in green is uh, the peninsula that we know as Turkey today. And Galatians, Galatia is right there in the middle. And so you've got a region in northern Galatia and southern Galatia. We think it's likely that he's probably writing particularly to southern Galatia. So the churches that he visited in Acts 13, 14. So if you know the book of Acts at all, Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. It's, a, it's kind of the big first early church council. And so Paul would have written this very early. It's possible also that he uh, wrote to the churches that he visited later in Acts 16 and 18 on his second or third missionary journey. But it's likely that this is written around the year AD 48 to these churches in southern Galatia. Now as Paul wrote this, he's writing it to combat the idea that you can change the gospel at all and still have the true gospel. Now this isn't something that's unique to the first century. It's something the church has continued to battle throughout the centuries. What is the true gospel? But the idea in particular that Paul is fighting is the idea that you must be circumcised to be a Christian, to be a true follower of Jesus. And he writes and says, no, you can add nothing to the reality that faith in Christ and Christ alone will save you. You don't need to add anything to that. In fact, if you do, you'll lose the true gospel. And so Paul writes to this church, these churches, and he writes to, sorry, don't see that yet. Pretend you didn't see that. He he writes to this church combating this idea, and and the structure that we have today kind of reflects the structure of the entire book. So we'll go ahead and and jump here. And if you walked into uh, Lowe's or Home Depot uh, this afternoon or yesterday, and you began looking for grass seed. Maybe it's, it's not unseasonably warm right now, but pretend it were, and it were time to begin thinking about overseeding your lawn. And you walked in, and you found a five-pound bag of zoysia seed like this. And if you shop for seed, you know that this bag of seed costs you somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 for five pounds of seed. 
Now, I'm always shocked when I, saw, when I shop for grass seed, how expensive it is. It's, it's, it's like, I don't know, it's the most precious commodity, apparently. You can buy a five-pound bag of flour or sugar for a lot less than you could buy a fine five-pound bag of grass seed. But if you think this bag of seed is expensive, walk down the street or drive down the road here just off of 17, you'll come to Possum's uh, Landscaping Supply. And it's often, I mean, you can walk in there off the street, I mean, if you're a homeowner, but it's often a place for kind of professional landscapers, they shop in there. I was shocked this last spring. I walked in there and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to, I'll just, I'll walk in there and I'll buy a bag of seed. And I picked up this bag of seed and I took it to the counter to check out. And I said, you know, I'll have this five pounds of grass seed. They said, no problem, that'll be $300. (laughs) Holy, you know, I said, I can live with my lawn like it is. I don't need, I don't need that seed. You see, the difference between this seed and the seed there in that bag was that is pure seed. This, if you buy this bag of seed, less than 20% of it is grass seed. It's filled with 80-some percent of some kind of mulch filler, something to make you, you know, if they gave you like eight ounces and charged you 40 bucks, you'd feel pretty bad. But they fill a five-pound bag with a bunch of crud and put a little seed in it, you're like, 40 bucks, I got a pretty good deal. But if you went and you bought that same five-pound bag full of only seed, it would cost you somewhere north of $300. You see, there's something to be said for the true thing, the real deal, the real thing, what is pure and valuable. And what Paul is getting at here is saying, you can't add any other thing to the true gospel, the real gospel. It is truly priceless. But watered down, it becomes worthless. It is something altogether different. And we as people who are receivers of this gospel, believers in this gospel, must know, believe, and hold fast to the true gospel because there is, always will be, only one true gospel. As you walk through the book of Galatians, we have this section we're looking at today, which is really the introduction. We have kind of two sections. You have Paul asserting the idea that he is an apostle, and then right after this, he defends the true gospel. And that's a reflection of the structure of the first two-thirds of this book. There are really three sections. Paul defending his apostleship. Paul defending the true gospel. And then thirdly saying, what does this gospel look like lived out? In other words, as this gospel changes us from the inside out, what does this gospel look like? And so, like any good letter, we begin with Paul's greeting in these first five verses. Now, letter writing is a dying art. We don't get a whole lot of them anymore. But the history of the world is often known through letters. One of my favorite fathers of our nation is John Adams, second president of the United States. But we know a lot about John Adams, not only through his formal writings, but actually through his letter writing. So he wrote a lot of letters back and forth with one of his main political enemies, Thomas Jefferson, and also with his best friend, his wife, Abigail Adams. Because he lived and was an ambassador overseas, but we know a lot about him through his letters. But if you and I, like John Adams, were to sit down and write a letter this morning, we'd likely begin something like, dear so-and-so. But if it were a mystery who this were from, you wouldn't find it out till the end, because we don't tell who it's from until the end. Sincerely, so-and-so. 
But the convention in the first century is to identify the writer right at the beginning. And so that's who we find out. Paul is writing this letter. The first word in the entire book is Paul. We know who it is. Now, Paul is originally named Saul. But after his dramatic conversion recorded in the book of Acts, he's renamed Paul. Now, Paul isn't exactly a compliment. It literally means small or little guy. The earliest document that describes Paul's physical appearance is a second century document, and it describes him this way. A man of small stature with bald head and crooked legs. In the church at Corinth, people made fun of the way he looked. Oh, he's weak. So Paul is a little funny-looking guy. If he walked in here this morning and you noticed him, you'd probably think he was a little strange-looking. But Paul's physical identity isn't what's important. Paul's primary importance lies in the fact that he is an apostle. Now, Paul wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. So he started the book of Romans, and you go all the way to the book of Philemon. Those 13 books are letters from Paul to churches or individuals. But in each of these letters, Paul introduces himself. And his favorite way to introduce himself is to call himself an apostle. In nine of his 13 letters, he starts by calling himself an apostle. Apostle literally means sent one, to send out. So in general usage, say outside the Christian church, Apostle is like an ambassador, someone sent to represent someone else. And we have this word, apostle, used two primary ways in our New Testament. The first way is what we might call little a apostle. An apostle is a sent one. Our modern term often is missionary or cross-cultural workers. We have terms for it, but it's the word apostle. It's an early church term for our missionary. But the second sense is what we might call a capital A, big A apostle. And this refers to the office of apostle. Now any Christian can be a little A apostle, can be a missionary, someone sent to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are only 12 big A apostles. Ephesians 2 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's talking about these big A apostles. So Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and then the foundation is these apostles. We have the original 12 disciples who became 11 after Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ and then committed suicide. The church then attempted to select a 12th apostle, recognizing they need 12 of the 12 tribes. They selected Matthias, but really the Holy Spirit had marked out someone else, Paul. Paul is the 12th apostle. So the Spirit does this, and there are no more big A apostles. They don't exist anymore. These are men who had firsthand encounters with the risen Christ. You see, big A apostles have special authority. They speak through Jesus Christ for God the Father. And no human being should make that kind of claim for himself. It's something God must do. That kind of special, unique, personal authority is done. Now, we can't spend too much time digging into this now because it's one of the main themes, and so we'll get to it more in later weeks. Paul defends his apostleship. 
So he writes with unique authority. He doesn't write letters like you and I write. His letter has unique apostolic authority. But even as an apostle, he doesn't write as a lone ranger Christian. I mean, look how he identifies himself. He writes from a community of faith. He says, there are brothers who are with me. And he writes two communities of faith, to the churches of Galatia. And the first words from Paul's pen are a blessing. He blesses these churches, grace to you and peace. Now verses 3, 4, and 5 are probably a standard prayer in the early church. Grace and peace to you, and they end with the word amen. He closes the letter in much the same way. And the source of grace and peace, he tells us, is God himself. As God reveals to us the gospel in his word, different passages reveal different aspects of the gospel. For instance, Romans 1, 2, and 3 reveal to us the righteousness of God in judging sin. And that no human being can stand before this holy judge. Ephesians 1, on the other hand, reveals to us all the blessings that God has bestowed on us in Christ. All the blessings of the gospel. And Galatians 1, verse 4 emphasizes a unique aspect of what the gospel does, and it is profoundly encouraging. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What an amazing comfort. One effect of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is that he delivers us from the powers of darkness in this age. And if there's a message the church needs today, it's this message. Christ died to deliver us from this age of darkness. So when we trust Christ, his redemptive work comes to us personally by faith. So there is this relationship, this personal accountability to our creator God, made declared righteous through Jesus Christ. But in addition, God also, beyond this personal relationship, places us within the stream of redemption within the stream of all that God is doing. And so we become one with this community of faith, those who are alive today and those who have been alive and those who will live through Christ. And if you and I were delivering us from the darkness around us, we would take us out. But that isn't how God works. He doesn't remove us He delivers us in the midst of darkness. So buildings broken into in our city, walking down and seeing communities boarded up, windows broken and shattered, riots, assaults on our nation's capital, but we don't have to go there. We can walk into our neighborhoods and see broken, hurting people living in a world that is increasingly hostile to God's word. It's tempting to worry. It's tempting to seize anything that will give us hope. Seize, look for some earthly deliverance. But God doesn't remove us from the darkness of this surrounding age. He leaves us here as lights to shine the light of Christ himself in this age. You see, people need the light of the gospel. People need the light of Christ. People need hope in Christ. 
Yet though we see the darkness, we never need to fear it. Because we don't know what the next chapter brings, or the next chapter, or the chapter after that, but we know the end of the story. And Philippians 2 tells us it's going to look like this. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end has already been written. Victory is assured. But before we move on, let's look again at one aspect of Paul's greeting here. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, as I reflect on Paul's ministry to this church, and if you read through his letters, this is not something you see once, it's something you see over and over. There's a part of me that must pause and ask, what kind of greeting are my life and words? I mean, reflect honestly. Are your words and your presence a ministry of grace and peace to the church? As you see the effects of your words and your presence, are you the kind of person that reflects God's grace, God's peace to our community? Grace and peace to you. And after this greeting, Paul jumps right to his key point. There is no other gospel. He goes right for gospel clarity. So if you look now in verse 6, we'll pick up our text here and read again. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. Verses 6 through 10 introduce us to one of the most difficult doctrines in Scripture, the idea of apostasy. Apostasy is someone who professes faith in Christ and later turns from that profession. So someone who claims to be a Christian and appears to be a Christian and later it seems that that person is not. And it normally happens in one of two ways. Sometimes there is a pet sin that a person just can't let go of. They're chasing a relationship with someone who's not their spouse. They're pursuing a lifestyle contrary to God's word. There's an addiction that just won't let them go. And they recognize that if they believe and receive God's word... That judgment waits for those who pursue this kind of lifestyle. And so they reject the truth of the gospel because they can't let go of their sin. But on the other hand, there are those who reject the gospel out of intellectual questions. If there is a good God who's sovereign over all things, how can all this brokenness be around us? 
Wait, what about the existence of evil in the first place? Or why doesn't God just save everyone? And so these questions lead us down a road intellectually that can lead us to reject what we receive by faith. You see, faith is what meets God's revelation and our understanding. It bridges the gap. And ours is a reasonable faith, but is still a faith. You see, there is greater attestation to the truth and reliability of Scripture than any other ancient document, but it's still one we receive by faith. But the most sincere faith in the world can't save you if the object of your faith isn't trustworthy. Now, imagine with me for a moment uh, that you are someone who just plans through life very carefully. And you're not someone who, I don't know, inherited millions of dollars. You work hard for what you've got. And as you begin working, you, you have saved and you've planned. And as you've done this, you sit down with a financial advisor. Now, this financial advisor is taking your very real dollars and your very real trust. But as you walk through life, 20 years down the road, after two decades, you've trusted this person with your goods and your future. You found that he's been siphoning off the entire time and there's nothing left. I mean, what a horrifying realization to be living life and realize that a person you entrusted with your goods, wasn't trustworthy. You see, it doesn't matter how real the dollars you place in his hands were. It doesn't matter how sincere your trust in that advisor was. If that advisor isn't trustworthy, if the object of your trust isn't worthwhile, it won't matter in the end. It's all about who we trust. You have to have the real thing. And the Galatians are being led astray by a distorted gospel. Verse 7. Now there are a series of events leading up to this letter. But Paul introduces us to the problem in verse 7. He said, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This word trouble, to trouble you means to shake. In other words, these attacks from these false teachers have shaken their faith. They've twisted the gospel. Now, these aren't as popular now as they once were, but imagine, I don't know, the, our county fair, or you went to some carnival funhouse. Have you ever done, have you ever walked through a hall of mirrors? And as you walk through the hall, and you look, and you're like, you know, that looks like me, but it doesn't look like me. You see, they have some, and they make you look very tall and slender. They take those, you know, those curves as, you, as you've aged, and they straighten them up a little bit. But there are others, and you walk into a different room of mirrors, and you look short, pudgy. You see, some mirrors skinny reality, and some mirrors fatten reality. But what they're doing is they're distorting by either taking away from what you really look like or adding to what you really look like. So it's a twisting, a picture that in some ways resembles reality, but isn't reality. And that's what's happening with these teachers. They're taking the gospel and distorting it to a gospel that resembles the gospel. You can look at it and see aspects of it there, but it's not the true gospel. It's a funhouse full of mirrors kind of gospel, a caricature, if you will. And so, in some ways, 
this gospel becomes a skinny of the gospel, and we do this today too. We present a skinny gospel. God loves you. He wants you. In fact, God is desperate for you. He'll be so happy if you accept him. Well, there are clear elements of truth to this, but it's a skinny gospel. You see, this partial gospel is twisted in that it acts like God is a needy high school girlfriend, desperate for people to accept him, rather than the all-sufficient sovereign of the universe who is perfectly satisfied in his own being and needs nothing. Or sometimes we might skinny the gospel by hiding clear teaching on sin and repentance. On the other hand, we can present, present a fat gospel. Christ died for you. And by receiving that by faith, you tap into this idea of grace, but you perfect Christ's sacrifice by the way you live. So there's this initial entrance, but you have to live a perfect life. We add to the gospel. This also is a distorted gospel. We seek to self-justify rather than trust the gospel and the gospel alone. We have a fat gospel. And God's word says both the skinny and the fat gospel are wrong. There is one true gospel. You can't take away from what Christ has done or add to what Christ has done without distorting what he actually did. And practically speaking, this idea has led some in the church to apostatize, to walk away from the gospel they believed. We have gospel desertion. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Now, it's not quite as common today because, I don't know, we've got nation states and the way we battle technologically is a little bit different. But throughout history, there have been deserters. And if you follow our own nation's history, you know that desertion is a crime punishable by death. Civil war, revolutionary war, you walk away from your army and they catch you you're dead because you can't desert your brothers. The Galatians, though, many are spiritual deserters. They have shifted their allegiance from the true gospel to a distorted gospel. And let's look for a moment at verse 6 to see something really important. He says, you are turning to a different gospel. Now, there's a sense in which this falls on our ears like you. But he says, y'all. He holds the entire church responsible for understanding and applying the true gospel. So let's think through a couple of implications of this, y'all. First of all, where does a congregation's understanding of the gospel come from? Well, primarily through the teaching and preaching of God's word. Primarily through the teaching of the pastors of a church. So there's a responsibility on my part to teach the true gospel, the whole gospel, and nothing but the gospel. But in the end, who does Paul hold accountable? Church. So it's my role primarily to preach the gospel publicly, but it's all of our responsibility to know it, to live it, and to recognize the true gospel. So this is not individuals walking around as self-appointed judges on Facebook, YouTube, classes. 
This is congregations of believers covenanted together by faith in submission to the Lordship of Christ. It's one reason why we're congregationalists by conviction. Not by tradition and not because we think it's a good form of government. Because Paul holds the congregation responsible for the true gospel. The entire congregation is responsible to know, guard, and proclaim the true gospel. And I have no doubt that most of you are not spending your days and weeks reviewing our bylaws, but one concern with the way this plays out at Ashley River Baptist Church is we don't have a statement of faith. We have a brief statement of basic belief, but I've never served in or heard of a church without a clear statement of faith. See, some of us aren't clear on the true gospel because we've never submitted to, in reality, the true gospel. We've never submitted ourselves formally to one. I mean, and the importance of gospel clarity is the reason we sit down with every prospective church member and ask them, do they know the gospel? Do they know Jesus? Because at the end of their days, being a member of Ashley River Baptist Church won't save anyone. But faith in Christ can and will. The gospel is at the center of all we do, and it is our only hope. So this naturally begs the question, what is the true gospel? How does Paul describe or define this gospel? And he does it with a few phrases. He calls it the grace of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the one we preach to you, the one you receive. And as we walk through this, we'll see five components to this definition. And the first is that it is a gift. Paul's first description is that the gospel is the grace of Christ. Grace is the practical application of goodwill in a gift. In other words, it's not something that can be earned. A gift is, by definition, not earned. We have earned something. The wages, the payment that we receive for who we are, what we do, is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. But the gift, the grace of God is eternal life. It's something that is not earned. Because the standard for salvation isn't something that can be earned. It is perfection. It's something only God can give, but the gospel is also a message. The word gospel itself means good news. So we can show the gospel by the way we live, but we cannot truly know or share the gospel without using words. You see, it's good to live a life of compelling love and holiness at work, at school, in our neighborhood, on the playground. But to share the gospel, we must share the news. So the gospel, thirdly, must be proclaimed. It is a proclamation. Paul says it is preached. This is our English word, evangelist. In other words, in settings like this, we preach the true gospel, but we don't preach it to keep it. We preach it to share it. We preach and teach the true gospel so that the members of Ashley River Baptist Church know the true gospel and carry the true gospel and proclaim and share this gospel. So in this age of darkness, every place a member of Ashley River Baptist Church goes, the light of Christ shines because it shines through us. But in the end, the gospel must be received. There is a reception. This gospel, Paul says, is the one you received. I mean, the most 
beautiful part of the gospel is that God would provide something we don't deserve and can't earn and freely give it to us. But the most humbling part of the gospel is that it is something that cannot be earned. That is not deserved. It declares that we aren't good. That we can't be anyone we want to be. That we aren't attractive pieces of humanity that God is running around scooping up. Oh yes, God loves us. But not because we're attractive. It's because it's God's nature to love even his enemies, Romans 5 tells us. But in the end, most importantly, the gospel is a person. It is Jesus Christ. This is the grace of Christ, the gospel of Christ. It is not our gospel. It belongs to him. It is from him. It is for him. It is about him. See, we can't understand the nature of this gift if we don't understand that this gift is a person. And this reality demonstrates that it's a lie to say that the gospel is a quick ticket out of hell and it doesn't matter for the rest of your life. You see, you can't live in Christ and live in sin. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, he illustrates, he says, what part does light have with darkness? But, but look at it this way. A lot of times we think about receiving Christ and that is one picture that scripture gives us about what it means to believe the gospel. We receive Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ is in us. But more frequently, God's word describes receiving the gospel as us being in Christ. And so if you imagine Christ then becomes the sphere in which we live and move and breathe and have our being. We live in Christ. And if you live in Christ, you can't be the kind of person that goes on doing the same old things. You can't be the kind of person that forgets what it means to be the body of Christ, to live in Christ. So believers don't break covenant in their marriage, not because that's not how we were raised, but because we live in Christ. So believers don't cheat in business, not because... It doesn't make sense, but because we live in Christ. Believers don't pay the church tax twice a year because we live all of our year in Christ. We live every day in Christ and we long to gather with the body of Christ. So we preach the gospel, not anything else. We proclaim Christ, not anyone else. And you're sitting here this morning and you haven't received Christ this way, the true gospel, by faith, and where the reality of this gospel has changed your life, would you turn from your sin and receive Jesus today? And the fruit of this gospel is whole life devotion. Verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I mean, every good messenger asks, who is my target audience? 
In other words, Chevy truck commercials tend to target things that men do. Oh, like a rock. That's because men like to think of themselves as big and tough and strong. You know, they don't say, like a flower in the breeze. <laughs> it's not compelling in the same way. And by the same token, Nerf gun commercials are targeted at kids. They're not showing formal fancy dinner settings with nice orchestral music. They're showing kids running around shooting at each other. They make it look like they can shoot twice as far as they actually can because it's targeted to the audience. And many churches have forgotten who their primary audience is. We've built ourselves around appealing to people. And this sort of consumerism is driven by our culture, not by the word of God. You see, we aren't people pleasers. We are seeking to reach people with the gospel, yes. But at the end of the day, people aren't our primary audience. They are our most visible audience, but our ultimate audience is God. We're the servants of Christ. So we seek to reach people with the true gospel. We seek to reach them with the true gospel. Because the true gospel is far more beautiful than any creation of man, any man-centered message. But our primary mission as members of Ashley River Baptist Church isn't to attract people to this place. I mean, look, I'm happier when it's full than when it's empty. Our primary mission is to draw people to Christ. And if that means that God fills the church down the street, not this one, we praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because Christ is our mission. We can't merely be flatterers who try to have people have a better life. Our job isn't to make people as immediately comfortable as possible. We're here to unsettle the comfortable and to comfort the unsettled. Because an eternal destiny awaits every person. So we must preach the true gospel. And we must live in Christ as people who have received this true gospel. It is the gospel of Christ, the grace of Christ. It is from him. It is to him. It is through him. It is about him. It is for him. It is Christ's gospel. Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.